Corinthians 15, 1 through 11. 1 Corinthians 15, 1 through 11. Uh, if you don't have a Bible with you, there should be uh, either white or blue paperback Bibles at the edge of each bench. You can grab one of those and you can turn to 1 Corinthians 15, 1 through 11. That's uh, on page 559 in those Bibles, and that should get you where you need to go. 1 Corinthians 15, 15 is the chapter number, that's the big number on the page, and then 1 through 11, those are the smaller numbers that are found throughout the sentences, and and, uh, that'll get you where you need to go. 1 Corinthians 15, 1 to 11, uh, page 559. Uh, When you walked in, you should have received a bulletin, uh, and in that bulletin, there's just uh, kind of some information about what we're doing here this morning and how you can interact with uh, with what takes place here this morning throughout the week. And there's also uh, a little um, uh, insert in there, something called a connect card. Uh, and that just is a, a good way for us to maybe learn some information about you, get to know you a little bit, and maybe reach out, uh, maybe get, grab some coffee, grab lunch with you sometime in the next several weeks. We'd love to get to know you uh, and, and connect with you uh, via those uh, that means. Uh, and also on that connect card, there's... Um, a little space for prayer requests, um, and, and we'd love to be able to know how we can uh, pray for you this week. We count it an honor and a joy to be able to do that. We, we look through those every week and pray through those, and, and so we'd, we'd love to have the honor to be able to do that. So if you take a few moments and fill that out for us. All right, well, let's uh, stand for the reading of God's Word. <coughs> we are looking at 1 Corinthians 15, 1 through 11. Let's listen with reverence and joy because this is the voice of our God. Now I would remind you, brothers, of the gospel I preached to you, which you received, in which you stand, and by which you are being saved, if you hold fast to the word I preached to you, unless you believed in vain. For I delivered to you as of first importance what I also received, that Christ died for our sins in accordance with the scriptures, that he was buried, that he was raised on the third day in accordance with the scriptures, and that he appeared to Cephas, then to the twelve. Then he appeared to more than 500 brothers at one time, most of whom are still alive, though some have fallen asleep. Then he appeared to James and to all the apostles, Last of all, as to one untimely born, he appeared also to me. For I am the least of all the apostles, unworthy to be called an apostle, because I persecuted the church of God. But by the grace of God, I am what I am, and his grace toward me was not in vain. On the contrary, I worked harder than any of them. Though it was not I, but the grace of God that is with me. Whether then it was I or they, so we preach, and so you believed. This is the word of the Lord. Thanks be to God. Let's pray together. Father, may the words of my mouth and the meditation of all of our hearts, now and always, be acceptable in your sight, our rock and our redeemer, through Christ our Lord. Amen. You can have a seat. Well, a few years ago on an Easter Sunday in Australia, an Australian reporter interviewed the then Anglican Archbishop of Perth. Uh, He's a well-known religious figure in Australia, and so uh, many would find interest in what he has to say. And so the reporter asked the Archbishop, if tomorrow we found the tomb of Jesus 
and could somehow prove that the remains in the tomb where Jesus remains, what would that do to your faith? To which the archbishop replied that it wouldn't do anything to his faith because Jesus was still risen in his heart. Uh, Now, just so you know, that's wrong. Uh, 1 Corinthians 15, Paul here has a very different perspective on the matter. Uh, Here in verse 3, he actually says that the resurrection of Jesus Christ is of first importance for Christians. Uh, In verse 17 here, he actually puts it a little more sharply. If you read on down through the chapter in verse 17, he says, If Christ is not raised, your faith is futile and you're still in your sins. In other words, either the resurrection of Jesus Christ was a real historical event or Christianity is nothing but a worthless waste of time. If Jesus Christ isn't raised from the dead, then he isn't who he said he is, and he didn't accomplish what he said he accomplished. If, if he didn't rise from the dead, he's either a lunatic or a liar, but he's certainly not the Lord. If he isn't raised from the dead, then there's no forgiveness. There's no new birth. There's no hope that we have beyond this life, beyond some sort of delusional, unfounded happiness that we find here in this life. We should be pitied, Paul says, as Christians, if Jesus Christ isn't raised from the dead. But if he did rise from the dead, then he's given us proof that he is who he said he is and that he really accomplished what he said he would accomplish. If he is risen from the dead, then he truly is the Son of God. If he is risen from the dead, then he really accomplished what he said he accomplished. He accomplished the forgiveness of our sins. The new birth is real. Our hope is well-founded. What more proof do you need than someone being raised from the dead? Now, I often talk with with people who aren't Christians and who are kind of searching and maybe struggling with the truth claims of the Christian faith. And many really like, uh, you know, parts of Christianity, uh, but struggle with particular aspects of it. Many people really like the social concern that Christians have. Uh, or the community that we all experience, or the hope that we have for after we die. But then maybe they don't like the sexual ethics, or the exclusive claims of the Christian faith, or the organized religion, or the, they really don't like the stuff about judgment when Jesus returns. But I want you to realize this morning that none of that is really of first importance in our discussion about the Christian faith. That's that's not to say that those things don't matter, and that's not to say that our questions don't matter. They most certainly do. But what we like or don't like about Christianity is really less important than whether or not Christ rose from the dead. Because if he didn't, then none of what he said really matters. We can just pack this up and go home. None of what we're doing here this morning really matters. The sexual ethics, the, the exclusivity, the organized religion, the stuff about judgment, you can toss it all if Jesus wasn't really raised from the dead. But if he was, then he really is the king of the universe. And whether or not you like what he says or don't like what he says is of of little consequence. You have to accept what he said. You have to submit to him as your king. You have to follow him with everything that you are. And so I want to present to you this morning that Jesus Christ is risen from the dead and that he is therefore worth following with everything that you are. 
That's our sort of big idea for the morning. And, and, and so I want to spend a few moments looking at five pieces of evidence for Christ's resurrection. And then I want to conclude with calling you to follow him with everything that you are. Now, some would say that the, the resurrection is, is more and more becoming something that people believed in in the past, but now due to the progress of human reason and, and scientific discovery, it's not something that people are likely to believe in for much longer. After all, they say, if there's anything we know about dead people, it's that they usually stay dead, as if Greco-Roman people in the first century didn't know that. But, but people typically stay dead. And Jesus of Nazareth, he was, he was truly dead. He really died. There's no doubt about that. It was a public event. There were witnesses. These witnesses wrote about what they saw. They recorded uh, the events and, and, and what they saw. They recorded what they had witnessed themselves. His death is a historical reality. There's no, bout, there's no doubt about it. But listen, the same is true of his resurrection. But because of his resurrection being a supernatural event, people generally have a hard time believing in it. And so there are a number of, of uh, objections and theories concerning what happened uh, when, when the early church was claiming that Jesus Christ was rose, risen from the dead. And they tried to explain it away in a number of ways. And so some try to explain it away uh, by what they call the swoon theory. And the swoon theory claims that Jesus didn't actually die, but he passed out from the excruciating pain that one experiences from crucifixion. And that's why he was able to get up three days later and walk around and talk to his friends. But, but this can't be true. He was executed by Roman, soldier, Roman soldiers who were master executioners. He was stabbed in the heart with a spear. Uh, he was buried, and all of this was done publicly so that the friends of Jesus, the foes of Jesus, the Roman soldiers themselves saw him die, saw his cold, lifeless corpse taken down from the cross and laid in a tomb. Not to mention, if he had survived all of that and, and the asphyxiation and all of it from, from being nailed to the cross for hours, it would have been impossible for him to get up and, and roll away this massive stone and walk around three days later. That all seems much more uh, unlikely than the, than the resurrection. Still, some others tried to explain away the resurrection by saying that it was all a big fraud and that he didn't really rise from the dead uh, because his, his body was stolen. Uh, But again, that doesn't really explain it. Uh, Who had motive to steal the body? The Roman soldiers didn't have motive. The the Jews didn't have motive. They wanted this movement that he had started to end quickly. Uh, Jesus' followers didn't steal the body. They were all going back to their vocations. They thought the movement was over and that Jesus dying represented their movement being over like so many movements before it as as other leaders in the Jewish community had been crucified. The, 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 The disciples certainly didn't steal it. Not to mention, this doesn't explain all the eyewitnesses who said that they saw Jesus after his resurrection. The fact that many of those eyewitnesses uh, even died for their preaching, even suffered and died for their, uh, their testifying to the resurrection of Jesus. People don't die for a lie. They don't die for a fraud. This still doesn't explain it. And still others tried to explain it away by saying that all of Jesus' friends were hallucinating when they saw him. This theory seeks to explain away the resurrection by claiming that Jesus' disciples and friends and family were all just hallucinating. You know, they all just lost this person that they loved so dearly. And, and, and to think that Jesus, uh, they, they started to think that Jesus came back from the dead. But, but this can't be true. There's no way that hundreds of people, as Paul says, 500, over 500 brothers, hundreds of people were experiencing the same hallucination at the same time. 
Uh, When those sorts of uh, rare hallucinations happen, they don't happen to a number of people. They happen on an individual basis. And, and, and so to claim that hundreds of people experienced the same hallucination, recalled everything in the same exact way, is, is ludicrous. But, but even if they did share some sort of hallucination, their claim that Jesus uh, was raised from the dead could have been easily discredited, discredited by the Romans and the Jews producing the body of Jesus. But they couldn't because the tomb was empty. And so there are a number of other theories that seek to explain the resurrection away, but those are, are kind of a few that scholars find most acceptable and most realistic. But the problem is, is that there's no evidence for any of them. There is absolutely no evidence that any of these theories are true. Yet many find these uh, theories acceptable because, again, time and experience would tell us that dead people don't usually rise from the dead. But isn't he right? once pointed out that the early Christians agreed that dead people typically stated that's what makes the resurrection so astounding. That's what makes these claims so astounding because we know what we do have evidence for. We have evidence for the reality that Jesus Christ is risen from the dead. We have evidence that he is alive and well. As long as you don't start with the presupposition, the assumption that the resurrection can't be true, the resurrection has as much historical evidence, the most, uh, as much evidence as any other historical ancient event. So, and so here are five pieces of evidence for the resurrection of Jesus Christ being a historical reality, being true. And there are most certainly more, but these are five. They all start with E. First of all, in 1 Corinthians 15, 3-4, we see the, the expectation of Scripture. Paul says that Christ died for our sins in accordance with the Scriptures, and that he was raised on the third day in accordance with the Scriptures. And so realize this, the, new, the, the Old Testament foretold the coming, the life, the death, the burial, the resurrection, the ascension of Jesus long before he came and lived and died and rose. Now, now Paul is not simply saying Jesus Christ Uh, died and was risen. The Bible says so, and so that's it, in some sort of like anti-intellectual fundamentalist sense. That's not what he's saying. What he's saying is that uh, the collective witness of Scripture reveals the reality of who Jesus is and what he's done on the earth. He's talking about the 353 prophecies from the Old Testament that were perfectly fulfilled in Jesus Christ. The 353 passages of Scripture written about Jesus centuries before he came, which he fulfilled. The 353 passages of Scripture that talk about Christ's birth, his life, his death, his teaching, his burial, his resurrection, his ascension. He's talking about the historical uh, literature and the poetry uh, in, in the Scriptures that trace the coming of the the offspring of Eve and the offspring of Abraham and of Judah and of David. He's talking about how Jesus, the the life, death, and resurrection of Jesus is a part of and the culmination of this ancient story that started with our first parents. He's talking about how the life, death, and resurrection of Jesus is a part of and the culmination of this ancient story that took shape with this people uh, in North Africa and in the Middle East. This, This people group wrote down their history and wrote down prophecies and wrote down poetry and all of that history, all of those prophecies, all of that poetry testifies and tells about a savior who would come to die for his people and be raised three days later. We have the expectation of the Old Testament scriptures. The empty tomb. Next, we have the empty tomb. We see in verse four of our text that Jesus was buried. 
But still, there were never any pilgrimages to his grave. His grave was never a site of worship like the prophets and kings of, the, of Israel. The most, that most certainly would have been the case. That was a very common practice at the time when people, uh, especially kind of famous figures in Israel, died and were buried. Uh, their grave sites would be uh, sort of sites of worship and, and visitation for many. But that's not the case for Christians because Jesus didn't stay in the tomb. Without the, without the empty tomb, Christianity never would have started to begin with because from its earliest days, Christians proclaimed the resurrection of the Lord Jesus. And if these claims could have been put to rest by someone presenting the body of Jesus, his body would have most certainly been presented. But no one could display the body. No one could display the corpse of Jesus because he was risen from the dead. The tomb was empty. His body was not there. Now, that doesn't necessarily prove the resurrection in and of itself, but it gives cause to ask a really good question. And that question is, if the body's not in the tomb, where is it? Which brings us to the eyewitnesses. Third, notice what Paul says here, starting in verse three, that Christ died for our sins in accordance with the scriptures, that he was buried, that he was raised on the third day in accordance with the scriptures, and that he appeared to Cephas, then to the 12. And then he appeared to more than 500 brothers at one time, most of whom are still alive, though some have fallen asleep. Then he appeared to James, then to all the apostles. And last of all, as to one untimely born, he appeared also to me. Paul is able to write in this letter that would be read in this public gathering of this church in Corinth around 20 years after the resurrection took place, that there were hundreds of people who saw Jesus after his resurrection from the dead. And he makes mention that some of them had died at that point, but that most of them are still alive. And his point in, in saying that, in sharing that with these, with these Corinthian Christians is that they could go and speak with these eyewitnesses and get their account of the things that happened. And he even named some names. He mentioned Cephas, which is the nickname of Peter, one of the 12 that followed Jesus. And he's, he's one of the most well-known of the apostles of the uh, early followers of Jesus. He's the one who denied Jesus three times and then who had gone back to being a fisherman on the three short days of Jesus being buried. And he's the one who, after seeing the resurrected Lord Jesus, stood up in Jerusalem just 40 days after the resurrection and announced to the crowds in Jerusalem that Jesus Christ was raised from the dead. And then Paul mentions uh, the rest of the men that followed Jesus. That's what's meant by the twelve. The 12 were the, were the main leaders of the early church, and they scattered to east to Asia, and they scattered west to Europe and south to Africa. And, and history tells us that they paid dearly for doing so. Peter was executed by being crucified upside down. Andrew was crucified uh, in, 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 in modern-day Turkey. James was clubbed and stoned to death. Thomas was stabbed to death with spears just east of Syria. Philip was executed in Asia. Matthew was stabbed to death in Ethiopia. Simon was killed in Persia. Matthias was burned at the stake in Syria. John, the only one who wasn't executed, was was, uh, 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 exiled to this barren island of Patmos where he died in old age. Next, Paul points out that not only Cephas and the 12 saw him, but he appeared to more than 500 brothers at one time, most of whom are still alive, though some have fallen asleep. He's saying this wasn't just a private event. This was a very public event. Over 500 people saw Jesus after his resurrection. Over 500 people saw him. Some ate meals with him. Some touched him and had conversations with him and heard him preach. And they were all willing to testify to what they saw. 
And next, Paul says that Jesus then appeared to James and to all of the apostles. And this is an interesting piece of evidence because James, he's not to be confused with the apostles named James. James was Jesus' very own half-brother. And, and, and he actually thought during Jesus' earthly ministry, he thought that Jesus was a lunatic. In, in, in Mark 3.21, it records that Jesus' brothers thought he was out of his mind. In John 7, we see the brothers of Jesus ridicule him and mock him as a liar. And yet in Acts 1, when the church gathers for a prayer meeting, who's there? The brothers of Jesus and James. James is present. And then not only that, but he goes on to become a pastor in the church in Jerusalem until he was martyred for testifying to the resurrection of Jesus in AD 62 by being clubbed to death. Another interesting thing that Paul doesn't explicitly mention here that gives further proof to the eyewitnesses of Christ's resurrection is that the Gospels in the New Testament say that the first eyewitnesses to Jesus' resurrection were women. And interestingly, the Gospels were all written at a time that a woman's testimony was not even permissible in court. Women were viewed at that time as a sort of lesser sex. They had a low social status, and and they were seen as not being able to be trusted and to give an accurate account of the events in court. And some of the skeptics in those early days even sought to explain Christianity away by saying that the first eyewitnesses were women and women can't be trusted or they must have been hysterical over the death of their friend or something of that sort of, some sort of sexist nonsense. Skeptics dismissed the claim of the resurrection because they thought that these women could not be relied upon for giving an accurate account of the events. But still, each of the Gospels say that women were the first eyewitnesses to the resurrection of Jesus. And if the writers of the Gospels were making all of this up, they certainly wouldn't have uh, made up that women were the first eyewitnesses because that could discredit their account in, many's, in many people's eyes. And, and, or if they felt as if they had a lot of freedom as to maybe give a less than accurate account of the events, and they most certainly would have left this part out or changed it completely, but they didn't. Women were the first eyewitnesses to the resurrection of Jesus Christ. We have the eyewitnesses. We have Peter, the 12, the 500, James, the apostles, and several women. Many people saw Jesus alive and well after this crucifixion and death and for 40 days after. These people testified to what they saw and they wrote it all down in the New Testament. And fourth, we see the explosive growth of the early church. What else could explain the way that the church exploded onto the scene of the Greco-Roman world and is still sustained to this day? These very few poor and very marginalized believers, very uneducated believers in the first century spread the gospel of Christ's resurrection with great boldness and even suffered and died for it. And despite the crucifixion, despite the martyrdoms that they were subjected to, despite the lack of education, the scandalous past of some of, their fo- um, some of, the, of some of the followers, they ended up leading a movement that within three centuries took over the entire Roman Empire and utterly changed changed world history. Christ's people exploded onto the scene of the world and they started new churches that preached the gospel, that fed the hungry, that clothed the naked, that visited the imprisoned. They started hospitals and adopted orphans and cared for widows. They sought justice for the oppressed and gave mercy to the undeserving. And the world is an entirely different place than it would have been because of Christ's followers. And Christ's followers exploded onto the scene and lived in this way because Jesus Christ is risen from the dead. 
James Allen Francis once said, all the armies that ever marched, all the parliaments that ever sat, all the kings that ever reigned have not had the impact on the world of this one solitary life. And it's true. No one, no matter how much wealth or power they had, no, no matter what sort of possessions they carried, none, no one changed history in the way that Jesus has. This Jewish man, born of a poor and powerless family in the small town of Bethlehem, who grew up in a small town that apparently nothing good could come from, who died the death of a criminal on a cross, is at the center of world history. He himself never led an army or carried a sword or wore a crown on his head. He barely had two pennies to rub together. He never wrote anything down that we have record of. But today, there are Christians all over the world celebrating the resurrection of Jesus Christ, celebrating that he is alive, which is another testimony to his resurrection. He's alive today and present in and with his church, despite the church's opposition from without and even within throughout the centuries. He has been present. She is sustained and she is ever moving forward throughout the world. And today there are churches all over the world who in many different languages are singing the praises of none other than the resurrected Christ. The early church exploded onto the scene of the Greco-Roman world and she is still, she is still exploding into the world today. An abundance of people all over the global south are confessing and claiming Jesus Christ as Lord every day. The resurrection of Jesus Christ continues to be propagated and proclaimed unhindered by world leaders and those in authority, however hard they might try to purge the record and people of Jesus from the earth. We have the evidence of the explosive church. Excuse me. Lastly, we have the extraordinary transformation. Here, beginning in verse 8, the author of 1 Corinthians offers up himself as a piece of evidence for the resurrection. Paul saw and met the risen Christ, and he was willing to testify to that. Eventually, he even died for that testimony. But it's not only his word that testifies to the resurrection of Jesus Christ, although that's true, but his extraordinary transformation testifies to this reality as well. We see here in verse 9 that Paul was a persecutor of the church of God. You may or may not know this, But Paul, the man who had a huge role in Christianity spreading all over the world, Paul who wrote 13 books of Holy Scripture, who suffered beatings and stonings and eventual beheading for the sake of Christ, used to himself persecute Christians. Before meeting the resurrected Jesus, Paul oversaw the arrest, the torture, even the murder of Christians throughout his city and region. Paul hated Jesus. Paul hated the church. Paul hated Christians. And he had devoted his life to extinguishing the people of God and the record of Jesus from the earth. He did it through violence. He did it through political maneuvering. He did it through use of force. He did it through the taking of lives. This man was a murderous thug. He terrorized the church. This man oversaw the arrest, the imprisonment of many Christians, and not only that, but the brutal murder of Christians as well. And he did so because Christianity was a threat to all that he had based his life on. As a Pharisee, Paul had based his life on Jews being superior to Gentiles. He had based his life on his religious discipline and his moral fortitude being enough to earn God's favor in his life. He had based his life on his privileged place in society. 
And yet Christians threatened all of that. Christian, the, the Christian faith threatened all of that because it was inclusive of both Jews and Gentiles. Uh, and, and Christianity said that, that it's not your religious activity or your moral fortitude that earns you God's favor and kindness. It's a gift based on Jesus Christ and what he has done. Christianity said that Paul's privileged place in society was as worthless as dung. And so Paul sought to destroy Christianity. And yet one day, Paul meets Jesus. He sees the risen Lord Jesus, and it transforms him completely. He goes from working hard to purge the good news of Jesus from the earth to working hard to propagate the good news of Jesus throughout the earth. This man who persecuted the church of God becomes someone who is persecuted for the church of God. This man who did unspeakably horrendous acts of violence uh, to people had unspeakably horrendous acts of violence done to himself for those very same people. And not once does he respond violence with violence. He, he, when he's slapped, he turns the other cheek. He prays for his enemies. He loves his enemies. He works for the good of his enemies. Instead of hating Gentiles, he loved them and served them and preached the gospel to them. Instead of working hard to earn God's favor, he received God's favor as it's freely given in Jesus Christ. Instead of basing his life on a privileged place in society, Paul says, I count my privilege as dung to know Jesus Christ and the power of his resurrection. Church, that's the power of the resurrection of Jesus Christ. The holdest, the hardest and coldest heart can be softened and warmed by the cross and resurrection of Jesus. The vilest of sinners can become children of God through the cross and resurrection of Jesus. The terrorist Paul can be transformed into a messenger for the faith he once tried to destroy. And so friends, don't ever write anyone off as being too hardened to the gospel or as being too far gone. The resurrection power of Jesus takes sinners and transforms their hearts and covers them in the righteousness of Jesus and makes them children of God. The resurrection power of Jesus can take murderers and terrorists and drug addicts and thugs and even you and make you into children of our Father in heaven who pour themselves out for the good of their neighbor and for the glory of God. Maybe you're here this morning and you wonder if you're too far gone for Jesus Christ and his salvation. Friends, there's good news for you. Jesus Christ died for your sins and he rose again. And if you would leave your sin and come to him, freedom, forgiveness, transformation is yours for free. He purchased it for you. The resurrection of Jesus Christ means that you can have that kind of resurrection life here and now and in the life to come. And so in conclusion, the expectation of the scriptures, the empty tomb, the eyewitnesses, the explosive church, the extraordinary transformation of Paul all offer evidence for the resurrection of Jesus Christ. These five pieces of evidence point to the historical reality that Jesus Christ is raised from the dead. And because he is raised from the dead, he is therefore worth following with everything that you are. In a few moments, you're going to hear from four people who are following Jesus with everything that they are. These four people are going to come up and they're going to confess their sins and they're going to confess faith in the risen Lord Jesus and then they're going to be baptized. Baptism is a practice and a picture that Jesus gave his church during his earthly ministry here. 
It's a practice that local churches are to employ whenever someone professes faith in Jesus. And it's a picture of the death, the burial, and the resurrection of Jesus. Just as Jesus died and was buried and rose again from the grave in baptism, we see a person being brought down into the water, symbolizing death and burial, and being brought back out again, symbolizing resurrection life. And it not only symbolizes resurrection life, the the death, burial, and resurrection of Jesus, it symbolizes that these four people have died to sin, that their sins have been buried in the grave with Jesus, and that they have been raised to new life in Jesus Christ. They are those whose stories have been marked by the resurrection of Jesus Christ. As, as Christians, we believe that we human beings are storied creatures. We all live in a particular story that helps us make sense of life and of the world around us. And maybe your story has been predominantly about materialism or greed or being a good parent or sexual gratification or being a productive employee or, or maybe people-pleasing or maybe your story has been predominantly marked by something else entirely, but whatever it is, and some of those things are good things, but whatever it is, If the story you are living in is not centered on Jesus Christ and his death and resurrection, it will only lead to death and destruction. It will not ultimately satisfy you now, and it will lead to judgment and death and the life to come. And the gospel that you've heard this morning is an invitation out of death and destruction, and it's an invitation into the resurrection life of Jesus Christ, into being restored according to Christ's story, into being brought into a new aliveness, an aliveness to God and to his will and to his work in the world, an aliveness to, to pouring yourself out in love and service of your neighbor. It's into following Jesus with everything that you are. And he's worthy of nothing less because Jesus Christ has been raised from the dead. As Paul says in verse two here, may you receive this good news. May you stand in this good news. And may you hold fast to this good news to the end. Let's pray.